Would you turn with me, please, to the 11th chapter of John, John chapter 11. God sometimes, as uh, Winnie the Pooh would say, is a puzzlement. He does uh, some of the most extraordinary things. His ways are, uh, as Paul tells us, past finding out. And perhaps uh, one of the most difficult things about God are these these delays, these long delays when God does not seem to hear us. He doesn't seem to do anything about our concerns. We call and uh, there's no one there. There's no one at home. When I was in college, I remember once driving across, uh, across West Texas in that uh, what appears to be God-forsaken landscape there, just flat with no people, no towns. And I uh, stripped the timing gear on my old Chevy and was stranded. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I had no money. I had no credit cards. I had no way to get home. I had to go to school the next morning. A uh, fellow came by in an old rickety pickup truck and picked me up and took me into town, one of these little West Texas towns that uh, buttons up about 5.30 at night. Everything was closed. The filling station was closed. I, I couldn't, couldn't raise anyone. But I found one of these wind-up telephones on the side of, a, of an ancient filling station there and, and called home. I thought, ah, that's the answer to my problem. Uh, my father will come get me. But uh, he was gone. My parents had taken off for the weekend, and I didn't know it. And the phone rang and rang and rang. There was no one at home. I uh, eventually got home, obviously. But uh, I have never forgotten the empty feeling that that left when I realized that I was stranded out in West Texas with no, no way to get home. There was no one at home. Now, a lot of you may be feeling that way this morning. You've rung up the Lord. You've called him. And there's no answer. He doesn't seem to be at home. What do we do at times like that? When the situation is desperate, when the crisis is total... And yet the Lord doesn't seem to respond to our needs despite what he's promised to do. How do we handle those times when God does not answer prayer? That's the concern before us this morning, and it's answered in the first 16 verses of John 11. Now, uh, let me set the stage for this chapter. We're going to talk about it in two, uh, in two messages because it's rather lengthy. And in order to get to the bottom of the passage, we need to take an adequate amount of time. This is the last of John's signs that he uses to authenticate Jesus. As you know, out of all of Jesus' miracles, John gathered certain signs, which he said were gathered for one purpose, to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah. These are written, he said. These signs are written. That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that believing you might have life through his name. In other words, the purpose of the so-called miracles or signs in the Gospel of John is to lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior that the world has been looking for. And therefore, we can come to him and find life. Now, he's selective about the signs. But they are conclusive, and they build. This is the last, the ultimate, the most persuasive sign, this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. According to the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, when Messiah came, he would heal the sick and raise the dead. Remember when John 
sent to Jesus from prison and asked if he was the one who was to come or if they should look for another. Remember how Jesus answered? He said to the messengers, go tell John that the blind receive their sight, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised from the grave. And that was conclusive as far as John was concerned. Now that's the reason why John put this particular sign in his gospel. This is the ultimate sign, the final sign, uh, unless you take the resurrection of Jesus itself as the ultimate sign, that he is the Messiah. Now, the the story begins in verse 1 with a bit of background. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha, And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. The story begins uh, with friendship. We need to understand the relationship that these four enjoyed to one another. Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus loved each other. The word that... uh, that John uses, or that the messengers used here, that John reports. To inform Jesus that Lazarus is sick is is the word for love, which means affection, warmth, intimacy. C.S. Lewis, this is the the word that that, uh, you, you think of when you think of an old pair of trousers. You come home at night and you put on a comfortable old pair of pants and you just kind of relax. That's the kind of friendship that's being described here. These are the kind of people that could let their hair down around each other. They could talk about anything and, and feel accepted. That's the kind of affection and warmth and love that, that they enjoyed. And this was a safe house for Jesus. Bethany was just a, just a hoop and a holler across the hill from Jerusalem, about a mile and a half. Went down through the Kidron Valley and up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and you were there at Bethany. A suburb of Jerusalem. So when Jesus was in Jerusalem, apparently he stayed at Bethany, and that's where he retreated when he needed to find rest. He was comfortable there. They loved each other. And that note is sounded all the way through this story. They were were good friends. And uh, when Mary realizes that her brother is critically ill, she sends word to Jesus. She knew where he was. He was a few miles north. If you visited Jerusalem uh, or uh, Israel... Uh, and across the Allenby Bridge, that's approximately where Jesus was. The Allenby Bridge links Jordan and Israel today. And that's where John the Baptist had carried out his ministry. And that's where Jesus was in hiding. He had fled Jerusalem because his life was endangered. And he'd gone across into Transjordan, what today is the, is the country of Jordan. And he was ministering up there. But he kept this family uh, informed as to where he was. So Mary sends word to Jesus, he whom you love is sick. Now actually, by the time he received word, Lazarus was dead. If you figure out the chronology of the story, it's apparent that he was. It took one day for the messenger to get to Jesus. Jesus delayed two days. It took two days, or took one day for him to get back to Bethany. And Lazarus had been dead for four days by the time he got there. So he must have died on the day in which his sickness was announced. So his illness was very, very serious. But what's striking about this whole story is the, the 
the almost casual, cavalier way in which Jesus receives, receives the word. The messengers say, Lord, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, he won't die. Literally. The sickness is not unto death. Now, uh, I think you would question the amount of compassion or care that I had for a friend. If you announced to me that one of my friends was in the hospital, critically ill, and uh, my rejoinder was simply to say, well, you won't die. And then I spent two days uh, doing something else without making any contact. You would think, well, he may be talking compassion and care, but he doesn't really care about, about that person. But we've been told over and over again that Jesus loved Lazarus. He really cared about Lazarus. Those are not empty words. And yet when he's told that Lazarus is sick, he, he just responds in this, in this rather casual way. Well, he won't die, he says. But there was a reason, as he tells us in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said this sickness is not unto Ultimate death is the way he puts it. He words it in an odd way. We'll come back to this passage in a, in a later study. He's not deceiving them. He's being truthful, but he's putting it in such a way that there, there is some veiled truth here. He's not dead, he says, but this sickness is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. There's a very good reason for this delay. There's a very good reason for Jesus' attitude about Lazarus' sickness is because he knew that God was going to triumph through this sickness, that he would be glorified, and that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself, would receive glory because of it. This uh, word glory and the word glorified are often uh, they're the sort of words that you think you know the meaning of until you're asked, you know. The words that we use a great deal in, in, when we're talking about biblical things. But we may not really understand what they mean. Let me explain. The word glory has to do with what a person is and what they can do. The word has to do with the manifestation of, a person's, uh, of what a person is and what they can accomplish. Worth perhaps, would be a, a good synonym today. Our value, our person's weight. A number of years ago, I, uh, I, was in, I was in Greece with a friend of mine traveling. And we went down to the city of, of Berea, one of the cities that, Jesus, that uh, Paul had visited. And uh, we were uh, traveling with a young Greek archaeologist. He was a student at the university in Thessaloniki. And he was traveling with us and uh, explaining sites and briefing us on various things that we were seeing. And we went to this museum, and they had just uncovered a, a tablet about so tall, and there was a, a classical Greek inscription on it, and he read it to us. It apparently was a man's obituary. It summed up all that a man possessed and all that this particular man had done for his community. And at the bottom was the line, this is his Duxe, his glory. And all of a sudden, the coin dropped. I realized what the word glory means in the New Testament. And incidentally, it means the, name, the same thing in the Old Testament as well. A man's glory is his worth. 
It's his value. It's what he is. It's what he does. So when Jesus says this sickness will result in God's glory, he means that that what God is and what he can do will be manifest. And furthermore, what the Son of God is and what he's able to do will be manifest. It will be a proclamation, a manifestation of the being and the character of Christ himself. It will all come as a result of the seeming tragedy. Here's this terrible thing that happens. His friend is dead. Jesus says, no, no, it's all for good. It will result in greater glory for God and glory for the Son of Man. Now, this leads me to one conclusion, and uh, I want to talk about this for a moment before we move on. There's every reason in the world to expect that we may get sick and that people will get sick and die. They do all the time. We should not believe that sickness is not God's will for us, necessarily. Some sickness is the result of sin. That's very clear. Scripture tells us that that's so. All sickness is the result of sin in general, and some specific sicknesses are the result of sin. But we should not believe just because we're sick that we're out of God's will or that we have sinned. It simply is not so. Sickness may be God's will for you. I have a tape by a, a quite a well-known singer in which he has a line. By his name, that is by Jesus' name, sickness will not dwell in you. Now, I really like her voice and I like most of her music, but she simply is not right when she makes that statement. We cannot simply by claiming Jesus' name dispel sickness because it may well be that that sickness is there and it may remain there so that God's glory can be manifest. Now, that's important to see because there are a lot of people that I, I have talked to, people that I visit in the hospital, who have been destroyed by a sense of guilt and a failure of faith. Someone has told them that your sickness is because you can't believe that God can heal you. And so they struggle to try to believe, and they've tried to think of sins that might have precipitated this sickness and they can't think of anything, or if they do, they've confessed it, and they feel that God doesn't, doesn't hear them. He hasn't really relieved them of the guilt. Otherwise, they would be healed. But we need to understand that some sickness is God's will. He may not alleviate the sickness. He may leave it for his glory so that, that he will be manifest. Who he is and what he can do will be manifest. And so the Son of Man will be manifest as well. Well, the plot thickens, <clears throat> verse, verse 5. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that would be Mary, and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now you talk about something puzzling. We would like to read that verse as though it says, uh, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he stayed two days longer. But it doesn't say that. It says he loved them, therefore he stayed. It's a matter of cause and, and effect. There's no other way to read the text. You can play games with the text. You can, you can change it. But, but that's, that's not playing fair because the text says he loved them, therefore he delayed two days. Because Jesus knew that there were things to be done that could only be done through delay. 
God's delays are not denials. You see, that's the, we look at it that way. We, we ask for help, and God seems to drag his heels. He doesn't do anything. We say, why doesn't he do something now? If he loved me, he would. Why does he leave me in this desperate situation? My marriage crumbling around my ears. Or my health failing. Or my business falling apart. Why didn't he do something? And we come to the conclusion that he doesn't love us. But it's not true. His delays are not denials. He loves us. And he knows that some things can only be taught through us, to us by delay. Because it's in those dark nights of the soul when there's so much loneliness and hurt and pain that we learn to cling to God, not to his goodness, not to the things that he gives, but to God himself, and just hang on for dear life. And that's when you come to know God in a way that you could never know him unless you had that experience. Remember Job? Job had the most dreadful series of events transpire that you could imagine. None of us have ever gone through those times. Nothing comparable. And at the end, Job said, I, I've heard of you by the ear. I had a second-hand knowledge of you. Now I see you. If you really want to know God, if you really want to see him for all that he is and see the Son of Man manifest in all of his glory, then you may have to go through a time of delay. When God doesn't seem to be meeting our needs, but what he does is provide himself. And we just cling on to him, hang on to him. Now, uh, another puzzlement, verse 11. Oh, pardon me, verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. This is craziness. On the one hand, here's an emergency situation. Lazarus is second to death. And Jesus says, let's wait two days. Now, he was not playing golf. He wasn't fishing the Jordan River. He was engaged in ministry, but his priority seemed to be somewhere else. So he delays for two days. Then, after two days, when Lazarus is, is dead, he says, now let's go into Judea. And the disciples shake their heads. Because not only is his decision puzzling, it's downright dangerous. He had just fled from Judea a few days before because they wanted to arrest him and put him in prison and kill him. And these disciples who were relatively unsophisticated men, they weren't used to this kind of uh, pressure. They were relieved to get out of Jerusalem. Now Jesus says, we're going to go right back into the lion's mouth. And if you notice carefully, he does not say, now we're going to go to Bethany. That'd be one thing. You could sneak around the backside of the... Mount of Olives and get into Bethany without being seen. But he's going to go to Judea, right where things are most difficult. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? It's very imprudent, they say. To go back there? Jesus answered. And this is indeed the answer. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What? You know, that was our Lord's way. He, 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 
he'd puzzle the disciples and then he'd give them an answer that would puzzle them more. But if, if they stopped and pondered and thought about it, they'd realize that they would realize that he answered their their their, their question, their, their quandary. It's a parable. Proverb, actually. It may have been one that was in current circulation, although I doubt it. I think Jesus originated it. Think about it for a minute. Do you, do you see what he's saying? There's 12 hours in the day. Now, we're talking about ancients who didn't wear timepieces, so they're, they tended to talk in round, round numbers. 12 hours of daylight, right? When the sun is shining and it's daylight, you can walk around. You don't fall over things. You don't make any mistakes. But when night comes, you stay home unless you've got a flashlight or a torch because there's no light. But at the last minute, he changes the proverb slightly. He says there's no light in him. And, and then the light begins to dawn in their minds, perhaps, that he's not talking about daylight, light outside. He's talking about light inside. If you have inner light, he's saying... You won't make any mistakes. But if you don't have that light, you'll make a lot of mistakes. You'll fall over all sorts of things. You'll hurt yourself. You see what he's saying? It's very clear when you think it through. It just takes a little bit of thought. The light is the light of revelation. When we have God's word and God's assurance of guidance. We're not going to make any major mistakes, at least none that are going to affect deeply your spiritual life or the progress of, of the kingdom of God. Do you see that? I've often said the only, pe- the only people that, that don't get God's will are people that don't want it. If you want it, you'll have it. About 99% of it is written here in Scripture, and it has to do with character, the kind of person we're, persons we're to be. Those aspects of God's will that have to do with direction, whether you live here or go to school there or marry this person or do this thing, that's God's problem. That's not your problem. It's his. It's his problem to reveal it. It's not our problem to find it. You don't need to worry about walking through the world and missing God's will if you want it because you've got the light to walk by. And if you need more light, God will give it to you. The whole issue is, are you walking around in the daylight or are you walking around in the darkness? If you're walking in the daylight, you'll know God's will. And you may do some very strange, puzzling things. Strange in terms of other people's understanding. But you won't make any mistakes. I have a good friend, many of you know him, Brian Morgan, whose father yearned for Brian to be a thoracic surgeon because that's what he was. And he was willing to pay the freight. Send him to Stanford he was pre-med through Stanford. He was going to send him to Stanford Medical School. He was accepted, and that was the direction he was going to go. And, and, and Brian sensed his tug in his heart to teach the Word and to do something else. His father's not a Christian. He couldn't possibly understand. And he had to go finally and talk to his father and say, you know, this is not the direction God has for me. It's another direction. His father thought he'd lost his mind. Thousands of kids would have loved to take advantage of that opportunity. And Brian turned his back on it and walked away. He's pastoring a church now in Cupertino, California. It's what he wanted to do because he wanted to walk in the light. And that's, that's the explanation for Jesus' actions. He always did what pleased the Father. He walked in the light. So he did these bizarre, seemingly bizarre things. Seemed to change his mind. Delayed on, one, on the one hand and then acted in what seemed to be a perilous precipitous way in another. But it wasn't because he was changing his mind. It's because he was walking according to the Father's will. Walking in the light. He wasn't making any mistakes. You see. 
And you won't either. Not any major mistakes. Not any that touch your spiritual life. Or will in any way affect the, the kingdom of heaven if you're walking in the light. So uh, he's going to go back to Jerusalem. This he said. And after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. You see, that was the father's will. The father had revealed to the son that he was to go and awaken Lazarus. And that would lead to his death, as we'll see. John leads us to that conclusion. That the major reason why the, the officials, the Jewish officials, killed Jesus was because of this final sign and what it did in terms of people's belief in him. He was actually orchestrating his death. We're going to see as we move on into the following weeks in the story of the passion and and the trial and ultimately the death of Christ, how Jesus himself organizes these events. People think they have him under control. Judas thinks he's betraying Jesus. Jesus is controlling Judas. He says to Judas at at the Last Supper, what you have to do, go and do quickly. Actually, the text is go and and do it quicker. That is, move a little faster. Let's get this thing going. And while everybody was panicking, not knowing what to do, the Jews totally lost control. Jesus is, is, is organizing his death because it was extremely important that he die on the Passover for obvious symbolic reasons. They wanted to kill him before or after, but Jesus designed his own death. That's why Schoenenberg, uh, Schoenenberg calls it the Passover plot. He's wrong in his analysis of the whole thing because the resurrection wasn't, uh, wasn't contrived. But he obviously saw that there was a plot here. Somebody was planning it. The Father was. And Jesus was simply fo- following the Father's directions as it led him inexorably to, to the cross. And the next step was to go down to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead. And that would kill him in the end. But it would be the final sign that he was the one that God had sent. And he says, let's go. Lazarus has fallen asleep, that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. That's good. He's resting. You want people that are ill to sleep. But Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, or literally Lazarus died. He knew that Lazarus had been dead for some time. And I am glad. Have you ever put those two verses together? Lazarus is dead. And I am glad. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I love this metaphor of sleep. We're going to talk more about it uh, in, a, in a week or so when we talk about the resurrection of Lazarus. It's, it's Jesus' way of looking at death. It becomes the apostles' way of looking at death. It's such a helpful metaphor. We dread death. We fear it until the sting of death is taken away. And, and then we see it as nothing more than going to sleep and waking up in another place. 
Remember when you when your kids were small and used to take long trips and they'd go to sleep in the car? I can remember picking my boys up in my arms and carrying them in the house and tucking them in their bed and giving them a little pat and, and they'd, they'd wake up and they were in their bed. They were safe and secure and at home. Jesus said, that's what death is. So we're going to see. He's the resurrection and the life. We don't need to fear death. He's taken away the dread of it. The last enemy, Paul says, has been defeated. It's like going to sleep. Jesus says, now I'm going to go down and wake him up. And I'm glad for your sake that he died. I'm glad I wasn't there healing. Because there is something else to be learned. You see, if he had not delayed, then the disciples would never have learned this, this lesson in faith and obedience. There are things to be taught us that only sorrow and tragedy can teach us. Do you realize that? We can't learn them any other way. God takes the worst that Satan can do because he is the author of death and disease. He's, he's the source of it. But, but God takes the worst that Satan can do and he turns it to his glory, to his grace. I've mentioned before a young couple who were missionaries with Overseas Crusades who were, uh, they were yuppies before anyone knew what yuppies were, living down in Saratoga, California, living in the fast lane, making all kinds of money. Both of them were, were working and living in a beautiful home up there, riding high. And they had a, had a baby that had Down syndrome, the mongoloid. And when I met them, they were going overseas to Indonesia with overseas crusades. And uh, when, they, when I went into their living room, the child was lying on the sofa, and it was obvious that he had Down syndrome. And uh, I asked the baby's name. They said, Andrew, because he brought us to Jesus. This man said, you know, I, you know, I never would have come to love the Lord if it hadn't been for Andrew. And what heartache this has caused us, but it's the thing that drew us to God and made us love him. And they're overseas now, serving with overseas crusades. While I was speaking at a, a conference center this past month over in Montana, a big uh, lumberjack pastor from uh, up in northern Idaho came up to talk to me and, and uh, told me of a friend of his who was a paraplegic as a result of a, of a, uh, a timber accident. A tree fell on him, broke his back, and he's paralyzed from the waist down. And this man told Rod, that's the name of the fellow that talked to me, he told Rod that, that he would never have come to God if this accident hadn't occurred. That's what broke his back, literally. He was a proud, arrogant, resourceful man until he broke his back. Now he's leaning on Jesus. And he said something very interesting. He said, as Jesus put it, it's better to, to go into heaven with one eye are no legs than to have two eyes and be cast into Gehenna. A number of years ago, I came across a quote from uh, Festo Kivinjara, who was, the, as you know, the Ugandan bishop. That he and his people suffered so much under Idi Amin. 
And uh, in his book, there is an account of an execution of uh, three men from his, from his diocese. Let me read it. It's rather lengthy, but we have a moment or two. February 10 began as a sad day for us in Kabbalah. People were commanded to come to the stadium and witness the execution. Death permeated the atmosphere. A silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two, two of my fellow ministers were with me. They brought the men in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood at attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who were almost certainly seething with rage? We approached them from behind, and as they turned to look at us, what a sight. Their faces were alight with an unmistakable glow and a radiance. And before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Bishop, thank you for coming. I wanted to tell you. The day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open and there is nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children that I'm going to be with Jesus and ask them to accept him into their lives, as I did. The other two men told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs. I felt that what, did I need, what I needed to do was talk to the soldiers and not to the condemned. So I translated what the men had said into a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. They were so dumbfounded they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. The three faced the firing squad standing very close together. They looked toward the people and began to wave, handcuffs and all. The people waved back. The shots were fired. And the three were with Jesus. We stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten, though dead. These men spoke loudly to all of the district and beyond, so that there was an upsurge of life in Christ which challenges death and defeats it. Simply another illustration of how God takes these seeming tragedies of life, the horrors of the situation in Uganda and the evils of a man like uh, Idi Amin, and he translates that into joy. That's why he delays. That's why he permits tragedy. He has things to be done in us. There are things for us to learn. There's something of God to be seen. And there's something of the Lord Jesus to be manifest in us. Let me leave you with this uh, footnote. It's the footnote that John leaves in verse 16. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him, that is, with Jesus. Dear old Thomas, he's one of the better known sad sacks of history. Gloomy Gus. Jesus says, Well, I. I if you look at the wording carefully, they, they say, we should not go to Judea. They're looking out for themselves. Jesus says, in effect, I don't know if you're going or not, but I'm going to awaken Lazarus out of sleep. So Thomas says, well, we'll just go and die with you. <laughs> in other words, he's saying, well, we're going to follow you, Lord, but I can't say anything good can come out of this. There's just nothing but tragedy ahead. And perhaps that's what you've been thinking. We just have to grind it out. We'll just go and die with it. 
You know, actually, Thomas is not a name. It's a nickname. The uh, word Thomas is the, uh, is the anglicized Hebrew form of the word twin, as is Didymus. Didymus is the Greek word for twin, and Thomas is the Hebrew word for twin. So it wasn't a name. It was a nickname. He was called the twin. So the question is, the twin of whom? Uh, there is a 2nd uh, century A.D. non-biblical book called the Acts of Thomas that says that Thomas was Jesus' twin. But I doubt it because uh, there's no indication that that's so. Others have thought that Thomas was Matthew's twin since their names always occur together in the list of apostles or almost always occur together. But uh, I heard Ray Steadman say one time, do you want to know who Thomas's twin is? He says, go look in the mirror. <laughs> and that's where you'll find him. And that's what I had to say to myself when I read this. And I grumble and complain and gripe about the way things are going. And why does God delay and why does he permit these things to happen? I just have to remind myself that God's ways and his delays are right and good. And they come to us because he loves us. And the purpose of it all is to make us more like him. A greater manifestation of the worth of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's just so good to hear again these words from this chapter and to remind ourselves that you are, that you do all things well. It's one thing for us to ascribe to the doctrine of your sinlessness, but sometimes, Lord, we, we think you've sinned against us and we forget that you never sin. You never sinned in the days of your flesh. And you do not sin against us now. But we can trust you. We put ourselves into your hands, knowing that you're, you're good and that you love us very much and that your intentions are always good toward us. We thank you in Jesus' name.